my dear brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that often that we learn useful moral lessons from thieves, but we hope to do just that today. We're going to talk about two men who shared Golgotha with our Lord Jesus Christ and learn the lessons that they both can teach us. These two men graphically illustrate the difference, the difference in human reactions to the curse that has been upon mankind since the Garden of Eden. I'll say that again. They illustrate the difference in human reactions to the curse. Understanding mortality and suffering has always presented one of the greatest challenges both to believers and unbelievers alike. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon, having reviewed life and all that it meant, rightly concluded that human life has been deliberately designed by God to include a mixture of good things along with travail and toil. For all its joys, our mortal life, said Solomon, is ultimately vanity and vexation of spirit. Whether we're rich or poor, vanity and vexation of spirit is the end result of human mortality. And we know from our study of the Bible that our God has a much larger view of life than just giving us personal happiness in this life alone. Let me read to you the words of Romans chapter 8 from the New King James Version. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected it in hope. The creation shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And Romans 8 is telling us that God deliberately subjected this creation to futility, to bondage, to corruption, that we might have hope of the glorious liberty of the children of God. And we know, therefore, that vanity and suffering and corruption, mortality, vexation of spirit are all part of God's master plan that he might generate hope within us. And we're never far from mortality, are we? We see the illness that afflicts our brethren and sisters and quite often early deaths that occur to those that we love. And we are constantly reminded of the, of the fragility of mortal life. On a wider scale, we look at the world and we see natural disasters and plagues and diseases take away many human beings from the face of the earth. And how do we react to these things? Well, the atheists, they say that there can't be a loving God. When they see wars and terrorism, natural disasters, disease, starvation, poverty, gross disability and human cruelty abounding everywhere, they say, well, that proves there cannot be a God. And there are many people who say, well, if there is a God, why doesn't he stop these disasters happening? Why does God let such terrible things happen in the world? Or if the suffering is closer to home, why did God let this happen to me? How can there be a God when such tragedy occurs everywhere in the world? And it's fascinating, isn't it, that most of mankind wants to forget about God in the good times of life. They want God out of their lives, except when things go wrong. They like to have a God to blame. You might remember after the Columbine school massacre in America, there was a posting put on the internet why didn't God stop this terrible disaster? And somebody posted below it, 
Hadn't you forgotten that God was banned from schools in America? No longer the Bible nor prayer are allowed in American schools. And yet people said, why wasn't God there to stop the massacre? You see, people once accepted adversity in their lives much better than we do today. A century ago, many mothers died young. Children frequently did not survive the first five years. In fact, Brother Roberts lost four children in very young age. And old age was once considered getting over 50. But today, we have an expectation to live long and happily. And the problem for us in the 21st century is that our humanistic Western world has created a new God which is called the God of my right to personal happiness. This false God is promoted by advertising gurus with all their magazines and publications using young, fit, beautiful, airbrushed people to convince us that the way to happiness is found in owning lots of things, in being healthy and fit, in being free to do just what you want to do, being financially secure and personally comfortable. No wonder we are called the me generation, the have it all now generation. And the humanists who have largely promoted this concept of my right to personal happiness call this the good life. You'll be amazed if you look through the advertising material that's junked in your letterbox how often the phrase the good life is used to promote all the things that you can have to make you happy. Freedom, pleasure and fulfilment. And everyone is told they have a right to these things. But life isn't like that, is it? Displeasing events come in life. They disturb our complacency and comfort. And we can react in one of two ways. We can say, well, that proves there's no God. Or it proves that there is a God. You see, what happens when mankind are faced with the disasters they can't explain is that the God of my right to personal happiness is proved to be false and vain. Life doesn't work like that. And even as believers, when things go terribly wrong, we can find our faith severely damaged by adversity. Think of Job's wife, having lost not only her children, her possessions and her husband's health. She was on the point of saying, curse God and die. And she was obviously a very faithful woman. And it is possible for believers to start to wonder about the God which they believe in. We can be tempted to think, because of the advertising of the modern age, that because we are believers, we'll be showered with blessings, when actually the reverse is the case. And the saints have always grappled with the reality of present sufferings, unexpected tragedy, illness, sadness, and injustice. That's why we have in the Bible the early life of Joseph, a whole trail of injustice and sadness, Job's journey of suffering, Jeremiah's lamentations, the sad and depressing Psalms of David, the book of Ecclesiastes, that we might understand that God works through adverse circumstances in our lives. And you see, we we have more than just the mortality of life that the world has to contend with. We have high aspirations for ourselves, for our families. We put a lot of trust and love in our brethren and sisters. And sadly at times we are disappointed or frustrated. We know so many people, don't we? Some here know people all over the world. And bad news always travels fast. And therefore as a community, 
We are frequently saddened by news of illness, death or failure or tragedy from all places in the world. And because we hear so much bad news, we need to be prepared to react correctly to those things. We know, as the saints of God, that our personal circumstances do not determine whether or not there is a creator. Rather, it's our reaction to the vagaries of life that matter. We must trust our God to bring good out of adversity, ultimate good beyond human comprehension. We know that trial is beneficial to those who are exercised thereby. And so we come to these two men. In Luke 23, we have two men painted before us who beautifully portray the right and wrong reactions to mortality and suffering. You know the occasion. Jesus crucified between two others. It was written that he would be numbered with the transgressors. So God saw to it that two others were to die that same day. And in one of them, God was to mercifully provide the first fruits to the crucified Messiah. And we can learn so much from that one man who did repent and ask the right question of the Lord. This man could say, as no other man could ever say, I am crucified with Christ. He was crucified with Christ as no one else could be. But he was there to show the Lord before he died that his sacrifice would not be in vain. Even before Jesus expired, he was to know the value of the travail of his soul and be satisfied that he had saved one man by the death that he he suffered. I want you to come firstly, though, to Matthew 27, the parallel record, and verse 44. You see, there's a detail in Matthew 27 that we don't find in Luke that is absolutely critical. Now, we understand the crucifixion process. We've often described the gruesome process, the agony of severed and crushed nerves, the difficulty in breathing once you are hanging there from those great lumps of iron through your wrists, the open shame of hanging naked before the crowd, the shock that comes upon the body and the physical collapse that follows. It was and has always been the cruelest and most agonisingly slow death that evil minds could devise. We can only imagine, can't we, the extreme pain as these three were nailed to the crossbars and then had their feet nailed to the upright posts. And men who have been through the process tell us of the terrific pain that hits you when the weight of the body falls upon those nails. An agony found voice. Look at verse 44. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. The same what? The same words we read in verse 42 and 43. The same words of mocking that were in the mouth of the priests and the elders were now thrown at him by both of the thieves that were crucified with him. In their great moment of agony, they screamed out against Christ. And Christ was praying for the Roman soldiers. Father, forgive them. They know what what they do. And when you read it in Luke, when the Lord says those words, it's in the continuous sense. He was saying it over and over again. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Father, forgive them. And that was the only way he could cope with the pain. But the thieves, in their great moment of pain, when that weight first hang upon those nails and the nerves began to jangle in their arms, They screamed out against Christ. 
And notice it's both of them in verse 44. They cast the same in his teeth. And that's worth noting. That's very important. As they hung there for the first three hours, they repeated the derision and the scorn of the priests against Jesus. And we need to ask, why did they rail against Jesus? It would have been natural to rail against the Romans. He wasn't the reason they were there. He had not committed the crimes they were being crucified for. He hadn't put the nails into their arms and feet. Why were they screaming against Jesus and not against the Romans? Well, the answer's back in Luke 23 and verse 39. Because in Luke 23, we find that one of them continued to say these things and to blaspheme and we're told why they screamed against Jesus. In Matthew 23, sorry, in Luke 23 and verse 39, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, and this one man continued to say all these same things. And the word railed there is the Greek word blasphemo. He blasphemed by saying, if you're the Christ, then save thyself and us. And that was the reason that they initially, both of them, aimed their words at Jesus. You see, they knew he could do miracles. Of the whole land he could do, knew he could do miracles. Everywhere there were thousands of healed people walking around that land. Thousands had eaten of the bread that were provided by him. Nicodemus said everybody knows that he was a teacher come from God because of the miracles he had done. And here were men in great agony, feeling a great sense of injustice and frustration that he was not using his power to save their lives. Why didn't he intervene and get them all off the cross? And they tried every verbal insult they could to provoke the Lord to act and to use his power wrongfully. And when he would not, they hated him because he would not deliver them. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 40 about the other. And you see, even though initially both of them railed against Jesus in the moment of their great pain, eventually one of them stopped railing and started thinking. And that's where we see the difference in the reaction of these two thieves. He started to think, but the other, and underline those words, they're so important. The separation of these two is now critical. You see, the one that kept on railing had no hope for the future. He resented very bitterly the imminent end of his life. He probably did not accept that his crimes were worthy of the pain he was going through. You know, we human beings always feel that any punishment we receive is too harsh. We are very good at forgiving ourselves. But the Lord answered him, nothing. You know, the taunts of the priests and the taunts of this thief were part of the savagery that Jesus had expected to take place on this day. And we can only stand back in amazement at the Lord's amazing self-restraint, at the insults that were hurled against him and his father, and his non-retaliation to evil. You know, brethren and sisters, if we ever want to know whether we're making any progress in being like under Christ, you just think of your attitude in retaliation to evil that is done against you. If you're still fighting with feelings of revenge and bitterness, if you can't keep your mouth closed when people insult you and blaspheme against you, we haven't learnt much of the Spirit of Christ. This was his great strength to say absolutely nothing in the face of every kind of insult and horrible thing that was said against him. But support came from an unexpected quarter. Now I want you to visualise the scene in verse 40. 
The other answering said, you think how far it was from one cross on that side to another cross on that side. I've estimated perhaps at least 15 metres. Below them there was a, a raging, screaming crowd that was throwing insults. It was a very noisy occasion. We know how hard it was to breathe on the cross, let alone to speak. And you think of the effort this man made to make the speech that he did. He would have had to push himself up, gasp out a few words, go down again. Push himself up and gasp out a few more words, loud enough to be heard right across the other side of the Lord Jesus Christ. Incredibly, he was the only person in the whole process of the crucifixion that publicly declared that Jesus was innocent. The disciples were nowhere to be seen. John had taken Mary away. The faithful women stood afar off, silently suffering. The centurion only spoke out after Jesus was dead. This was the only voice of support the Lord had for the whole day of his crucifixion. A day full of unmitigated anger and hatred, verbal abuse, taunts, questioning in his father's love. If he will have him, let him bring him down from the cross. How refreshing to the thirsty soul must have been these words of vindication. And having silenced his fellow thief, he then turned to Jesus and made his famous request, Lord, remember me. And we have in verse 42 and 43 the beautiful reply of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's very sad that we normally only come to these verses when we are arguing against false church doctrines about immediate heaven going and deathbed conversions. I want you to look at it today, what was said here on this cross, as a statement of an amazing faith. And we can deduce many things about what this man believed from the few words we have recorded. Number one, he had an amazing concept of of Jesus, his work and his character. It could not have been gained from that day alone. All he'd heard the Lord say on that day was, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And yet he could say and silence the other thief by saying, this man has done nothing worthy of death. To be able to say that, he must have known the Lord for some time and closely. This man has done nothing worthy of death. His reference to the kingdom did not come from anything he'd heard that day. The kingdom had not been mentioned on the cross. So we can conclude that when Jesus went everywhere preaching the kingdom of God, this man had heard the gospel of the kingdom and believed it. When he said, when you come into your kingdom, is a word that indicates arrival or coming again. When you come again to take up your kingdom, it seems he understood the process of the resurrection of Christ, the ascension to heaven, the second coming, and the process of judgment. Remember me in that day. And that implies a process of a sorting out when the Lord comes. And in just that little bit of understanding, he was miles ahead of the disciples. He'd been at Jesus' feet for three years. They still failed to comprehend the total picture of the cross and the resurrection. They would need 40 more days of intense instruction in the kingdom of God. How often are we told that they failed to understand It says in Mark 9.32, they understood not that saying. In Luke 18 verse 34, they understood none of these things. In Luke 24, 
Even after the resurrection, the Lord said to them, fools and slow of heart to believe. And over and over again, the Lord had spoken about his kingdom, his death and his resurrection. And they hadn't put it together like this man had. In fact, at this time, this was probably the only man in the world who'd grasped the total picture of what the Lord's death was about. The cross before the crown, suffering before glory. And above all, he'd grasped that through Jesus he could be forgiven of his sins and that there was life eternal ahead. Roman justice would not forgive him. It would demand its horrible final retribution on his body. But he knew that Jesus could forgive him by faith and by grace. Like Abraham, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And this man certainly was accounted righteous without works. In rebuking his fellow thief, he showed a fear of God. Dost thou not fear God, he said. He could see that God was at work here, despite the horrors that they were in. And you know, when people are faced with incredible adversity, they either believe in God more or they believe in God less. One of the saddest things that I ever saw in the United States of America was at the Washington Holocaust Museum. And you go there and you see the terrible things that happened in the Holocaust of the Jews in the Second World War. And as you come out into the sunlight, there is a pillar at the exit. And inscribed on it is something that was found in a diary that was hidden at Auschwitz. And it says this, When I entered Auschwitz, I stopped believing in God. How sad. How sad. This thief, faced with imminent death, faced with excruciating pain, said, Dost thou not fear God? Aren't we being justly condemned? We are mortal creatures and this is what we deserve. And you see, this thief not only declared God's righteousness, that God alone is right, that we are all sinners worthy to die, but he testified to the innocence of Jesus. He accepted that no man can save himself, but God can save anyone. And he no longer talked about being saved now, as the other continued to do. He accepted death was inevitable, and he looked to the future. Now, how come that this man had such a grasp of the things of God? It wasn't learnt there writhing in pain, It wasn't learnt there in one hour while he gasped to breathe. Where did he learn all those things? Well, I'm going to suggest a possibility to you. I believe he was a lapsed disciple of Jesus. The word thief is quite misleading. The New King James Version has criminals. They were not pickpockets, swindlers or burglars. They were what we would call freedom fighters. Only if they're on our side, of course. If they're on the other side, we would have called them terrorists. But they were what we would call freedom fighters or resistance fighters. They were the zealots who were fighting against Rome's occupation. I want you to come to John chapter 6. And let's look at these men that are described to us here. You know, there were many zealots who found Jesus very attractive. They were the men who politically wanted to overthrow the Roman occupation. And these two men on death row were companions of Barabbas that Pilate had first offered to the crowd and had released instead of Jesus. Barabbas was the guerrilla leader. He was the leader of the pack. 
Every time Barabbas is described as a robber or thief, it's the same word we have here. He's a criminal. Barabbas had been leading a fight against Roman occupation. He'd been arrested with some of his men, as Matthew 27 tells us. And to the Romans, these men were murderers and thieves because they lived off the land by robbing people and particularly by robbing Roman soldiers and Roman camps. So they were thieves and robbers, but they did it in the cause of Jewish defence. They were called zealots. They were fanatics. They were nationalists. And along comes Jesus talking about a Jewish kingdom. Now look what it says in John chapter 6 and verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet should come into the world. And here were a bunch of guerrilla fighters looking for a leader with power. And they saw the miracles of Jesus and they said, this is the man that we need to overthrow the Romans. Verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, he said, these are men of action. They're going to kidnap Jesus and make him lead their their cause to make him a king. He departed and went away alone. And they hung around and waited for him to come back. Well, he came back and he gave them the speech of John chapter 6. Now remember, the crowd is loaded with zealots who are about to try and kidnap him and to make him king by force to fight the Romans then and now. Well, look what Jesus said. You know, when you go through John 6, it was a total letdown for those who wanted action against Rome now. Jesus talked about the bread of life. He talked about the need for people to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. And by the end of the speech in verse 68, almost everybody except the disciples has walked away in disgust. But I want you to notice the theme that runs through John chapter 6. You know, if you look at these words in verse 39, the end of each verse, but I should raise it up again at the last day. Verse 40, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 44, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 47, he that believeth on me shall have everlasting life. The end of verse 50, a man may eat thereof and not die. Verse 54, I will raise him up at the last day. And then come back to verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And you can't miss what that speech was about. Reward, vindication, the kingdom is at the last day. It is not about getting rid of the Romans now. No wonder the zealots left Jesus. He had disabused them of a political uprising. And many of those who had faithfully followed him, who had heard the gospel of the kingdom, were now driven into the arms of the zealots because clearly Jesus was not going to let himself be made king and take on the Romans. And I believe this man on the cross, this zealot who was being crucified for his crimes of resistance, was one of those men that had believed in Jesus and had lapsed and gone into the arms of the zealots. But you can imagine as he now hung there next to Jesus, the words of John 6 crashing back into place. It's not about this life, it's about the last day. I will raise him up at the last day. I will raise him up at the last day. You know, if that conjecture is true, it shows you why this man could be saved. 
He had faith, but it had lapsed. The Bible does not encourage last-minute conversions from people who have ignored God all their life. But this man was a well-educated believer who'd gone astray through political involvement and now realised his mistake. And thankfully, it is always possible for Christ's followers to repent and to return, even at the 11th hour, that God might finish his work in us. And this man did just that. Now, back in Luke 23, as I said, we often deal with this section because of its doctrinal import. One of the questions that's raised is, can a man be saved without being baptised? Well, it's quite possible he had been baptised by John, Jesus or the disciples. But baptism was not needed for this man. Jesus was not dead nor raised. So baptism as we know it as a symbol was not applicable nor required for this man. But you think about it. He was the first person to be baptised into Christ. Jesus had said to John and James, can you be baptised with the baptism that I am to be baptised with? And the answer was they couldn't. They ran away. This man was crucified with Christ. He did not need any symbolic death. He was there, literally with Jesus, being baptised into his death. So he didn't need baptism in the sense that we do. What about the phrase, I say unto you today, in verse 43, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And we know how the churches misread that as an immediate transportation to heaven. Well, the reward could not be that day. Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus would spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It was not a reward that day. The Greek is quite clear. The punctuation should be after the word today. Verily I say unto thee today. Read it in Rotherham's translation, which is quite accurate. And make a note of Hebrews 3, verse 15, where you have the same Hebrew idiom. Today, if you will hear his voice. That's the way it should be read. So Jesus was saying... I'm telling you now, this man was prepared to wait until the day of the Lord's appearing to know his fate. Remember me when you come, Lord. And the Lord said, no, I'm telling you now, today, that you will be with me in paradise. Your forgiveness is instant. Your salvation is guaranteed. And what about paradise? An unusual choice of word, we might think. Paradise, the garden of God. Well, Hebrews says that when Jesus was on the cross, he thought against the shame. He thought of the glory that was set before him. And I believe what the Lord was doing, that in trying to cope with pain and and, and all the things that were being thrown at him, he was mentally going over why he was there. Thinking against the shame. Reliving the Garden of Eden, the way of the tree of life, the lamb that God would provide. And his mind was back there as to why this had to be so. And Eden restored upon the earth, his Bible language, for the glories of creation being brought back into the earth once again, of nature at harmony with itself, of man having fellowship with the Elohim. Imagine what it was like for Adam and Eve to hear the angels singing, to walk and talk in sweet fellowship without any sense of fear, to live without toil and curse. All that had been lost through sin. And the Lord was knowing that his death was restoring Eden on the earth again. There was a need for the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There had to be the death of the seed of the woman that there might be a resurrection back to life 
And the Lord was thinking about the garden of God. And when the man asked the question, remember me when you come into your kingdom, you will be in paradise with me. But think about this also. What a contrast to the day that they were experiencing. The place of a skull. Three men dying in horrible mortality. And crucifixion is a terrible way to die. Not just the pain. But because the nerves are so much involved in the process, the body loses control. And you become a quivering, slavering wreck. It's a shameful way to die. And there they were, three battered scraps of humanity, stuck on dead trees, surrounded by beasts more wild and dangerous than hyenas or lions. And Jesus is thinking about the tree of life in the midst of the garden of God. And he says to the man, we will meet in happier circumstances. A total contrast to the day that we have today and this gruesome scene. And do you know those words that he said in verse 43 were almost the last words he said to any man other than perhaps a few words to John. Because immediately after the thief was promised life, gross darkness fell for the next three hours and it was about the sixth hour. Immediately he finished saying those words. Paradise, darkness fell. And for the next three hours, from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, gross darkness was over the land. And at 3 p.m. Jesus died. And he left the man that was crucified with him for another three hours of agony. But there was agony now mingled with hope. And just before the sun went down, the Romans broke his legs and he choked to death. Very likely his body was thrown into Gehenna and was reduced to ashes. But what a wonderful future that man has. In him, Jesus saw the first roots of the travail of his soul and was satisfied. Have you ever wondered where he might be in the kingdom? The man who was crucified with Christ? Perhaps very close to Christ for much of the time. Perhaps even one of those reserved places on the right hand or the left, which John and James sought to have but were not able to bear. But the lesson that we learn from this thief is his reaction to mortality and to suffering. What changed this man from a blasphemer at first to a repentant saint? How does a lapsed disciple suddenly come to be a restored believer? Well, I want to tell you some of the things that I learned from this man, which I hope might be useful to you, about the sudden change that came upon him and what we can learn from that. We must first give up on this life as an end in itself. As happy as life sometimes seems, our current existence is about preparing for the eternal. This life is only a path, it's only a road to everlasting life in the kingdom. And we've got to remember that. It's not about this life. We have to accept mortality as our fate. We have all sinned and sooner or later death will claim us. And that's first base in our spiritual health and rebirth, that we have a need, a need to get away from this mortality. Once we accept that mortality and suffering is inevitable and deserved, we will stop blaming others for the things that go wrong in our lives. He said to his companion, We die justly. 
And when we accept that whatever happens in life is nothing more than we deserve, we begin to grow spiritually. We have to learn to uncouple the pain and the shame and the suffering from any perception of unfairness or injustice. We have to learn to stop questioning and blaming and to say, what can I learn from this? Surely God is trying to make me look to the future. And when we uncouple from pain, any perception of unfairness or injustice, we use our brains to look to the future. That's what this man did. He was able to think about the kingdom and to spend those last hours thinking about the future and not about the current suffering. He grew very rapidly in spiritual things. So some conclusions I want to leave with you. We must leave any perceptions that the vagaries of life are unjust or unfair. Mortality is indiscriminate and it's random. Illness and mortality can strike us whether we're young or old. Don't blame God, but look to the future. When things go wrong, it's not our right to audit God and to say, why are you doing this to me? Job was right when he said, Yahweh giveth and Yahweh taketh away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Shall we only receive good at the hand of God? Shall we not also receive evil as a loving father chastens his children? So God will chasten us. And sometimes God has a direct hand in the suffering that comes. The case of the man born blind. His affliction was that the work of God may be made manifest in him and it was. He endured blindness for many years that God might use him to instruct others. Think of the suffering of the sisters of Lazarus. It turned out to be for the glory of God. And there are many times that the sufferings of life that come our way are actually the hand of God working good in the lives of many people. You only have to review the lives of the great Bible characters like Joseph and Abraham and Jeremiah, Paul and Moses, And look at the times of travail they went through to see what great deliverance and growth God could bring out of those things. And we have to realise that some deprivation of happiness is actually good for us because only in, in deprivation of happiness do we learn to really value the things that matter. When we are faced with mortality, we no longer take life for granted. And the future takes on a much larger significance. Instead of questioning God, we must believe that God knows what he's doing, that God has a far wider, far longer picture than what we do. We serve a very big God with a very fantastic purpose that we don't understand fully in this life. Whatever we suffer, let us remember the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. In doing so, we will realise that our afflictions, which may be nothing more than a few unkind words, rejection, loneliness or disappointment, are by comparison very light to his sufferings. Let's always remember we live in a world where many starve, where many are refugees, where many are terrorised, where many exist in degrading poverty, 
Let us learn to count our blessings, to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and let us remember to reject that false God of our right to happiness. Let us remember to number our days and apply our hearts to wisdom. Let's get our priorities sorted out. Accept that all flesh is grass and that men will disappoint us as we no doubt disappoint God. And above all, let us use adversity to focus on the joys to come. To be determined that out of any circumstance to find the benefit that God has concealed there for those with eyes to see. And to realise that God will not always shower us with unlimited blessings, but he will improve us through carefully selected afflictions. And if we have traversed the valley of the shadow, then we're in the best position to help others who are entering the darkness. If we have suffered, then we are the best placed to understand and to counsel and to comfort those who go through similar things. And from the reaction of these two men, we learn the difference in how we react to suffering and adversity. One man continued to rail against God and against Christ. The other, the other, the record says, feared God, accepted that he was rightly condemned to mortality and looked to the kingdom. We can learn so much, brethren and sisters, from this unnamed criminal and his reaction to suffering. We can look forward to the day that we will meet him in the kingdom of God and hopefully we can all thank him for teaching us how to correctly to react to adversity. But today, let us say the words we sang with him. Should thy wisdom, Lord, decree trials long and sharp for me, pain or sorrow, care or shame, Father, glorify thy name. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom.